Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. I'm your host, as always, Kane Sims, and today we have an epic conversation coming your way. I'm speaking to Byron Reese, who is a renowned published author. He's published more books than I've probably read, and all in the realms of humanity, psychology, human biology, and how all of that intertwines and interlinks and gets us to where we are today on the verge of this artificial intelligence revolution. The impact of AI on us as a species, the impact of AI on jobs. Uh, it's going to be an absolutely amazing, amazing conversation. I'm going to get into that in just one moment. But before I do, two things to talk to you about. Obviously, you can see I'm donning the Unparsed shirt because Unparsed is back, boys and girls. The most loved conversational AI conference is back in London this June 17th to 19th. We're going to be gathering a group of 400 practitioners, including you, AI experts, the people who are the, the leaders of the field. And we're going to be sharing best practice, insights, case studies. We're going to be discussing hot topics and furthering the conversation of ethics and responsible AI. We've got a design stage where we'll be pushing the boundaries of design best practice and user experience design best practice when it comes to AI systems. And a developer techie stage where we're going to be discussing how to actually take this stuff to production successfully so if you are interested in getting your ticket the early bird passes are on sale right now at unparsedconf.com unparsedconf.com and also if you want to speak there's a there's a, a, a the call for speakers is live as well now so you can submit a proposal to speak whether you're a developer a techie a designer if you're interested in sharing your thoughts and your experience then get yourself uh, get yourself submitted and we're also looking for partners so if you are you know in that kind of position a, a, an organization that would value getting your brand in front of more than 400 ai practitioners and leaders then uh, then do reach out uh, and lastly, we are doing a webinar next week with Quick on February the 15th. Quick built a generative AI chatbot with loop insurance and it works incredibly well. In fact, I posted about it this morning and put a little screenshot up there just about how effective it is. It catches the context. It understands what people are saying. It responds effectively 99.9% .9 of the time. And even when it can't respond, even when it can't get the answer to your question, uh, it will still contextualize it and respond appropriately. Uh, it is a fantastic example of how to do generative AI in a customer environment really, really well. And so if you're interested in learning how that was built, if you're interested in learning how you can do the same, then join myself, Quick and Loop Insurance next Thursday, uh, February 15th. You can go to vux.world forward slash events if you want to register for that. All right. Now then, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Baron Reese to VUX World. Baron, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome. I am so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Where, whereabouts are you right now? I am in Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. The place to be, isn't it, right now? It seems to be everyone moving from California to Austin, Texas. <laughs> it's the, uh, yeah, it's the place to be in America. I've been here since the 90s. Um, wow. So I've, I've watched all of that happen. Early adopter like it <laughs> cool wicked well I'm, I'm so excited to have you here um i we it was funny because i can't remember exactly who it was that reached out to us that said you know baron reese might be interested in the podcast and so i was like really is that the baron reese whose books i've got sitting on my shelf and i went to the shelf and i got the books uh, stories dice and rocks that think and i have the fourth age as well and i thought it is it's baron reese that's fantastic so thank you for uh thank you for doing it appreciate it Oh, I, I, I'm excited to be here. Nice one. So maybe it's for, for those that, that kind of uh, are not familiar, uh, maybe it would be interesting to hear a little bit about yourself, about your kind of background and obviously the, the, the books that you have, the companies that you founded and stuff like that. And just tell everyone a little bit about, yeah, who you are, what you do and, and kind of what your interest in your likes of AI is really. Well, um, I'm an entrepreneur by uh, training. And uh, I've been doing AI stuff for over 20 years. I have uh, patents in it, and I um, uh, have started a number of companies. My most recent one was an AI company that tries to predict products that people would want to buy. And, uh, and so I, I do that. And then on the side, when I'm not doing that, basically from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. every morning, I write. <laughs> and I write about topics that, uh, that interest me. Are things I'm learning about, and then I like to share that with other people. Uh, the the book you mentioned, The Fourth Age, is a book I wrote about artificial intelligence, and it was a little bit of a different book because it really was trying to get at the question of 
why do people have such different takes on what's going to happen with it and whether it's good or bad i mean you get you get people who are like um you know who invoke terminator metaphors and all of that and then you get people who invoke like you know utopian star trek kind of things and they and and i wonder why these smart people have such different views and that's what that book was about it was a philosophy book about artificial intelligence i'm not supposed to say that because evidently that does not supercharge sales when you say that um <laughs> but that's that's what that book was and um uh, that and that book uh, that you mentioned is in i guess 12 languages now so it uh it resonated with somebody at least wow i would think that that seems for me to be the perfect kind of book an artificial intelligence book that is also a philosophical philosophy book. That seems to me to be the, the absolute perfect book. I enjoyed writing it, and I wrote it not knowing where I was going to land, as with most of my stuff. Uh, my books are journeys that I go on that I like to share with uh, anybody who wants to accompany me on it. Really, uh, that particular question, a lot of it boils down not to what you think computers are, but what you think people are. And... If you believe people are machines, mechanistic at their core, nothing in you that um, can't be described with either chemical reactions or electrical impulses, then someday we're going to build a mechanical person. And then every two years, it'll double in capability. And, and that's one path. But if people are not machines, and you don't actually have to go all metaphysical to believe that. You just have to believe there's something about people that you can't manufacture in a, in a, in a factory. Mm. Uh, if people are not machines, then machines will never be able to do what people do. And those are two very different views of, um, of, of computers because they're two very different views of what people are. Mm, and that's it, yeah. And, and the, the kind of angle in the book, isn't it, is that kind of, it's exactly that, yeah. If you believe that people are tools or, or kind of like um, pre-kind of determined, manufactured kind of robotic things that do predictable things and, and all that kind of stuff, then the, the tools that we create will inevitably be similar. And therefore, the whole kind of dystopian view on AI is that this, the AI is going to come for our jobs and replace everything we do is, is born out of that mentality of believing that humans are just mechanical kind of doers, so to speak. Whereas if you have more of a utopian view on it, that AI actually is going to help the world out a hell of a lot and that, you know, it's probably never going to replace humans. And that's because humans are in some way um, harder to, to figure out. And I think that I'd be interested in, well, I'll tell you my thoughts in a second, but where, where did you end up then after, after writing that book and kind of, thinking about this for yourself where did you end up did you do you think that ai wow. is dystopian territory or is it more kind of like uh, positive outcomes well i used to host this podcast an ai podcast and it had all these amazing people on it and i would ask every one of them a variant of that question you know are people machines are we mechanistic at our core or, or, and uh, out of over 100 guests only 3 said no we're not machines only three wow everybody else said said we were um i would have been the fourth i'm and I, I i preface it that way to say i have a very much a minority viewpoint on this i do not think that people are mechanistic you know and i'll come to your specific question which is dystopia or utopia but by my you know if i were to ask you um what was the name of your of your first teacher, or um, what color was your first bicycle? You can probably recall those things, even if you haven't thought about them in twenty years. Mm. And that and that little trick is something we don't we don't know how people do that. There's not a bicycle location in your brain that that is stored. We don't we don't know that. And then uh, beyond that, uh, you have something called a mind. A mind is like all the things your brain can do that. It doesn't seem like an organ should be able to do. Your heart, for instance, doesn't have a sense of humor, but you do. <laughs> and so we don't we don't know where the mind comes from. And then there's consciousness where you actually have an experience of the universe. You you can feel warmth. You can't measure temperature. You can feel warmth. And those are very different things. And we don't know how it is that matter can experience something. We just don't know that. And so given that we have brains, we don't understand minds, we don't understand consciousness, we don't understand. I am not persuaded that we can manufacture that. I just have no reason to believe we can. Mm. Um, 
I, I think the whole story of humanity has always been that there's never been enough for everybody, never been enough food for everybody, never been enough medicine, never been enough. And that, so some people get it and some people don't. And that's sort of been the defining thing about, about our, our progression is that there's just never enough of the good stuff. And we learned a trick along the way, which is technology and how it amplifies and multiplies what we're able to do. I believe that knowledge is power, and I think it's the power to make your life better. And so to me, artificial intelligence is the ultimate technology. It really will usher in, I believe, uh, a, a utopia. You you have to start by asking if you think overall people are fundamentally good or bad, mm -hmm. um, because it's going to amplify whatever that is. And I believe we're we're fundamentally good because there was a period in our past, and I'll wrap up here, but there was a period mm. in our past where we got down to about um, 600 mating pairs of humans. You can tell this because uh, the genetic diversity of any two humans isn't very much. We're all very similar, which implies this genetic bottleneck. There were just a few of us. And so when you say, well, how did we get through those rough times? Was it like everyone for themselves, rugged utilitarianism? But it, it wasn't, because what happens is at that same time, we find the remains of people who uh, were so injured they would not have been able to care for themselves, but they were cared for. We find we find skeletons of old people who would not have been able to contribute to their society, but who um, were also cared for. And mm -hmm. so in our weakest, most vulnerable moments, we watched out for each other. And I think that's our core and our best self. And I think that, uh, therefore, uh, we are at, at our core good. And I think only 7% of us are bad. Mm. I suppose the the kind of the risk from the AI side of things is that yes, humanity, I suppose, on the whole is good, but yes, there is also some bad. Um, technology that is so powerful in the hands of those that are bad could potentially amplify the amount of negativity and kind of like uh, you know, I'm just thinking about there's there's lots of companies out the, at the moment. I was speaking to a couple this this week and last week who they specialize in detecting deep fake voices and they specialize in doing that in the call in the call center in the contact center so that if you have someone calling up trying to pretend to be you and trying to get access to your bank or whatever then it can kind of pick them out and so like those technologies wouldn't be needed if we were entirely good um do you think that you know the balance of the good that this technology can do which is dramatic i think but there is also it just takes one bad apple to spoil the bunch so to speak so the the kind of th is there um is there enough of a threat i suppose from certain parts of the global population when it comes to utilizing ai nefariously to cause ai to lead to that dystopian uh future or do you think that on the whole we're, we're, we're all switched on enough that we won't let that happen I don't. The asymmetrical argument has been around for a long time, that these technologies amplify the ability to do bad. It's historically easier to destroy than create, and that they amplify the ability to destroy. I don't find that argument persuasive, though, because um, we've had similar asymmetry for centuries. You could take uh, you know, a dead goat and drop it in the town well and poison the whole town. You could, <laughs> you could, you could wipe out the town by just dumping some dead animal in, in the well that everybody uses. And yet, that wasn't something that happened. They didn't have armed guards around the well to keep that from happening. You could, for the longest time, you know, people have known how to genetically engineer. They could, in theory, bring back smallpox. We've been hearing about that for decades, that that could happen. And yet, um, you don't have that. You, you get things like, uh, you could do germ warfare very easily. You could poison a bunch of... Um, uh, you could you could take botulism or something and and make it incredibly potent and kill just enormous amounts of people and and yet that doesn't happen either. Um, it's I think that we're we're wired to be very fearful creatures. I think that that served us in the past. You know, in the past, if if you were a, a timid creature and every time you heard a twig break, you feared the worst and ran off. You probably survived. And the optimist, the confident optimist is like, I'm sure it's nothing. I bet it's nothing. <laughs> and they were the ones that got eaten. Because most of the time it was nothing. But every now and then it was something. 
they got eaten. And so we're the timid ones. We're the descendants of 10,000 generations of timid creatures who uh, freak, you know, who freak out and, 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 are, are, and that's fine. Like we can own that. We can say, well, that, that furthered our survival, but we just have to know that that's also our, our predilection and that we, we, we reward people who, uh, who frighten us too. Like we, 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 we buy the newspaper, you know, what in your water is killing you tune into five to find out. Right. Um, you know, people talk about the media is always feeding this. Well, no, the media is, but that's because that's what people want. And, and, and so I think we are just like wired for that. And, but, but these, these fears are not, I don't think, I mean, we have to be mindful of them, but they aren't. It would it would surprise me tremendously if somehow mm. we we went from that world of six hundred mating pairs of humans where we weren't the fastest or the strongest we had no medicine we had no walls we had no countries we had nothing and somehow we made it here to our full glory eight billion people and all of our technology and wonder and if somehow now you know oh well we made this technology that makes people smarter and some some people used it broke everything <laughs> i just i just don't believe that narrative yeah i agree I, I i don't believe that narrative on a on a global societal scale that ai is going to be so uh potentially detrimental that it's going to you know bring an end to society I, I don't believe any of that stuff and i actually <laughs> given the role that i have i'm a huge optimist about the future of ai obviously you know we work with businesses and the technology providers that build these tools and everyone's heart's in the right place everyone's trying to do things for the betterment of the business for the betterment of their customers and all that kind of stuff so there's no there's none of that i suppose i'm trying to play devil's advocate a little bit to try and think about those areas where maybe they won't be a society a global global societal issue but there is kind of potential issues there so for example you know yes someone's not going to go and you know dump a, a goat into their well because then they're going to be affected by the output of that as well um and they won't purposefully go and create viruses that are going to do damage although if you put your tin hat conspiracy hat on you might kind of point to covid and, and ask a question about that but um the, the it doesn't have to be as big as that though does it to be to be a kind of uh an issue. I'm just thinking about the American elections coming up this year and the potential for AI to be used in that situation for influence and, and, and you know, persuasion and stuff like that. Because it reminds me a little bit of, I'm not, I'm not sure how familiar you are with um, the UK and Brexit when we left Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially what happened when we left Europe was there was a company called Cambridge Analytica mm -hmm. and they managed to get some data uh, from either Facebook or somewhere. And they sort of determined that there is a there is a, a small number of people that are likely to vote. Well, half of the country basically are going to vote to leave Europe. The other half of the country are, li are likely to vote to stay. And right in the middle, there's this 3 million people that we've identified who depending on how that 3 million people vote, that will sway the election. So what they did is they run, they, they, they spent billions, or the, the uh, Leave Party spent billions on running Facebook ads that specifically targeted that 3 million uh, people and everyone else, the whole rest of the country, didn't have a clue about it because obviously you won't see the ads that someone else sees. And it turns out that, you know, the result of Brexit was we're leaving Europe, we've left Europe, and that's kind of that. And so it's a slightly different example of, you know, how data can be used to sway something as important as an election. And you add on to that, you know, the capabilities that AI has today, the ability to create deep fake videos, deep fake voices, uh, generate more creative output than is, is humanly possible in a very short space of time. And in the wrong hands in the election year and stuff like that coming up, can you see um, space for that to happen? Or do you think that we've, we've learned lessons from the past now and, and that, you know, there's, there's going to be a more ability to, to sniff that stuff out and, and nip it in the bud. I guess I look at it just a little differently than that, which is for 10,000 years or, or however long, um, up until Edison, if somebody said something, there was no actual objective record of it. There was no way to record any audio, right? Like it just didn't exist. There was no way to verify anybody ever said anything. And newspapers, at least in the U.S., because it's the only history I know uh, of this about, 
We just make stuff up. They just make up things that never happened. And they would just write these stories of, and they would vilify uh, opponents in, 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 in ways so vitriolic we don't even do today. Like really, really just mean, <laughs> terrible things they would say about them. And there was nobody. And, and then if you read that paper, that was the only paper you read. You didn't have the ability to go and check four other sources and see what they said. So if you were reading the whatever, St. Louis Democrat or whatever the paper was, they could say anything they wanted. There was no way to verify any of it. And people had no other sources of information. Um, and yet we muddled through that. We muddled through it. And so now we're in this, again, it's sort of this this kind of perpetual fear thing. Now we're in this world where you can check things out and you've got all these different ways to do that. Um, and now we're, we're somehow thinking it's something new that uh, we can't believe everything we hear, that that's a, a, a new phenomenon. Mm. And I, I just don't see it as being that different. Yeah, yeah. What, wouldn't, wouldn't writing an article in 1850, there's no recording, making up an article that so-and-so candidate said something, that is a deep fake. Mm. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, very true. I mean, the uh, the kind of... It's it's very similar. I mean, AI itself is a lot of people. I think think of it as you know, it's not unlike any other technologies that have come before it. And in fact, it's not unlike what humans do anyway. You know, a great example is when you talk about generative AI. And one of the pushbacks that companies have about deploying generative AI in the enterprise is that these models will hallucinate from time to time, as in get something wrong, make something Ooh. up, um, and. The reality is, if you were to go into any call center, and if you could listen to every single call, you will find within that space, people that not tell the truth. And that's why people, customers are calling back, you know, four days later, hey, you told me I was going to get a refund. Oh, well, actually, sorry, no, that product's not eligible for a refund because, uh, you know, you, you bought it 12 days ago and we're only allowing refunds within 10 days. Or oh, someone told me I was allowed it. Oh, well, sorry, but that's not the case, you know. So even our people won't necessarily always say the right things at the right times. And why Why would AI be any different, you know? Right. I agree with that. I mean, and I think that's incumbent on people in the industry. Um, the, the fear is that it is represented as something that is infallible. That's yeah. the fear. And, and we're told, oh, well, the machine said it, therefore it is true. But I think people are getting over that. I think it's incumbent on us to just remind people that, uh, you know, yeah, it, it 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 too. But it is, I think, I, I would I would part with you on uh, slightly on something you said earlier, which or I don't think you actually said this, but the idea that it is just quote another technology. Mm. I I don't I don't think that actually. Um, you know, the thing that makes humans different is clearly our intellect. Uh, you know, that's why we are where we are and in the great, you know, tree of life. Uh, and this is a this is kind of the fundamental tool because it, it amplifies our greatest power, which is uh, our smarts. And we. You know, we. The, the story of, of humanity has kind of always been that we. uh that people learn a lot in their life. And then we had this bug where we die. And then you kind of reset every generation. And maybe a few things got passed along and progress comes really slowly in that because hmm. people die. And then we learned how to write stuff down, but that was really expensive. So we only saved a few things. And so progress was slow. And then we learned how to print cheaply with Gutenberg. And that gave us a scientific revolution, like overnight, because you had all this information. But then all of that stuff started accumulating in uh, libraries. And 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 it, it was like that last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, where they put the ark in that warehouse where with everything else, that's what libraries are. They're impossible to find things in. And then we learned another trick, which was to take the 26 letters of our alphabet and, and recode all of that stuff into two letters, zero and one. And then you could search it all of a sudden. You could search it. And that was a, you could find things. But the, the thing was that all information was still very disparate. You, uh, it, 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 it was all scattered around the, the world. So that's why when you do a search with the search engine, 
Uh, what's the difference between a cold and the flu? The search engine comes back and says, I've got 30 billion pages for you. And you don't, you don't want 30 billion. And what I think is really profound with these LLMs is they are our first effort to build a planetary brain, a single knowledge base of everything that is known. And when that happens, and we 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 enliven the internet with sensors. We don't even know how many sensors are attached to it now. Is it a trillion? Absolutely a trillion. How many is it? We don't know. But when you start enlivening it with um, with sensors, you're starting to record every cause and effect that happens in the world, everything that happens in the result, and that becomes this knowledge base that will inform everybody else's decisions in the future so that the, every person in the future will be wiser than any person who's ever lived because they're going to have the life experience of everybody who came before them. And mm -hmm. that will be a profound, uh, that will be the great, the great leap forward in my view. We will have one planetary mind mm -hmm. instead of, uh, of 40 billion web pages. Yeah, interesting. Um, I'd love to know what you think the impact of that is. Um, but before we get there, perhaps it's worth kind of, I don't like to understand your kind of definition of AI, because I know in the fourth age, you've got a really, really great question. I did a poll on LinkedIn about this, actually, the other week, um, inspired by that, which is that you have artificial intelligence, which is artificial as in artificial grass. So it's it's not actually real intelligence, it's pretend intelligence. And then your other definition is uh, you have artificial intelligence, which is real intelligence, but it's just being created and, and manufactured, almost like a prosthetic limb sort of thing. It's, it's a real limb, it's in your body, it's working, it's functioning properly, but it's being created by somebody. And so I ran a poll on LinkedIn and it was very close. I think about 55% of people voted for the latter, which is that, artificial intelligence is true genuine intelligence but that's been fabricated and created from nowhere as opposed to it being pretend intelligence where where do you sit on that and how do you define artificial intelligence the man who coined the term mccarthy regretted it I know. <laughs> he said it was not a good term and you know one of the things i've learned in my books is that uh there are all these big words all these big concepts we use that we can't define. We don't have a consensus definition for life or death or art or friendship or love or any of these big things. And we don't have one for intelligence. Nobody is in agreement on what intelligence is. And I think what that usually is indicative of, it means we we don't understand it. We don't really understand what it is. Um, and, and I would believe that. And yet we use it all the time. I even used it and said, what makes us special is we're intelligent. Um, classically, it is, uh, I don't believe it is actually intelligent. No, I don't. Mm. So to answer your question directly, um, it is really good at, uh, at imitating intelligence. Now, the question is, does it matter that it can only imit? Is there a, what's the difference between imitating intelligence and being intelligent? Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe that is an immaterial uh, distinction, but that's what the fourth age is about, about that kind of that question of does that matter? Mm. It reminds me a bit of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Darren Brown in the US. Have you heard of Darren Brown? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he um, he wrote a book years and years and years ago, and I remember reading it when I was, I must have been 14, 15, something like that. And in there it says something like, I don't know the exact way it's phrased, but it's something like, if you walk into a room and you pretend to be confident, but you're not really confident, then to everybody else in the room, you will appear confident. And so it, for you, there's a difference between genuine confidence and pretend confidence. But to the outside world, there isn't really a difference because if you're pretending to be confident, everyone perceives you as confident. It seems as though that's a little bit along the lines of what you're talking about with artificial intelligence, where it's maybe it's not real intelligence, but it can pass itself off as being intelligent and therefore people believe that it is. That is actually, could well be. I've never thought about it that way. That's really smart. Mm, I'll credit Darren Brown with that one. Uh, so going, going back to what you were saying before then around the kind of impact of everybody having the ultimate humanity, kind of the, the ultimate intelligence of humanity, combined intelligence of humanity in the, in the palm of their hand or on their wristwatch or, you know, in their phones. 
what is the kind of longer term sort of societal impact of that? Because we're really only right at the very beginning of that right now, aren't we? Definitely. I mean, one of the one of the Greek uh, one of the Greek playwrights saw a time in the future when we would quote, uh, "Tame the savage heart of man and make gentle the life of this world," and I I think that is ultimately what uh, we want to do is build this this world that <clears throat> I, I've I've always been a fan of utopian literature, like as a genre. What 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 do people think is the perfect world? What do people think a utopia is? Uh, how does that change over time what they, they picture it being? And utopian literature really began um, in about 1650. There's a good reason for that I won't go into. Um, you get little examples. You could say Plato's Republic is utopian literature. But in terms of people talking about here's the future and here's what the world looks like and isn't this great, it's about 1650. And when you look at the things that they thought this great world was going to be, they said that, wouldn't it be great if uh, men and women had legal equality? Wouldn't it be great if you could marry who you wanted to? Wouldn't it be great if we elected our leaders instead of had hereditary monarchs? Wouldn't it be uh, great if we educated everybody, not just a few people? And on and on and on and on. And what happens is, of course, we end up picturing that and then we build that world. Now, we don't have that for everybody, obviously. But those are now things that are in our daily life. And mm. now we start imagining what utopia looks like to us. And the point is, is that these technologies allow us to, to build that, whatever world we want to. And, um, and, and I think it is actually appropriate to have the conversation of what that looks like to us, to our generation. Uh, we don't have as much utopian literature, believe it or not. Now, it, dystopia just seems to sell a better. It, it, it makes better movies, frankly. And so we we don't articulate that as much. But I would say it this way, which is whatever world we can imagine, uh, we can create. I think when I look in the sky, night sky, we live in a universe that looks like it has a lot of empty space. Everybody's got their favorite uh, big universe analogy. And mine is this one. If you put a grain of sand on the tip of your finger and you extend your arm out to the sky and you look for that piece of sand, when you see that tiny speck of sand, you should realize that's blocking your view of 30,000 galaxies. <laughs> 30,000 galaxies are being blocked by that tiny piece of sand. And that is this universe we live in. And it's not inconceivable that we're alone in it, or at least... There, are, there aren't a lot of other intelligent life. So I like to picture a world where we have a billion planets that we go out to the stars and we populate a billion planets, each with a billion people. And each of them is, is empowered to live their best possible life. Um, mm. I don't know why that wouldn't be our destiny in a, in a universe as big as it is. We've gone from 8 million people to 8 billion people on this planet in just 10,000 years. And in a blink of an eye, we went from 8 million to 8 billion. We thousand-folded ourselves. Now, why were we able to do that? Why didn't we have 8 billion people 100,000 years ago? Well, we couldn't have supported it. We didn't have the ability to, to create a world that 8 billion people could live in. Uh, we had 8 million people. We barely had cities or anything like that. So in, in a blink of an eye, we went up a thousand-fold. So we can go up a thousand-fold and then another thousand-fold, then another thousand-fold, then another thousand-fold, and we can... We can fill the universe with, 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 with people. I mean, ultimately, I'm a humanist. I believe in us. I think that um, there is an inherent worth in in, in humanity itself, and the, and putting it everywhere. I think we'll I think we'll terraform planets. Right? We'll send out these little microbes that'll land on planets that are lifeless and make them over the course of eons make them support life, and then we'll move to them. So mm. that's what I think. One of the people who everyone obviously knows is is kind of beginning to try and get to that place is Elon Musk, you know, trying to get to Mars and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, he was one of the people who kind of signed the letter last year to suggest halting progress on the development of artificial intelligence, which, you know, doesn't seem to sort of line up. If we're saying that artificial intelligence and 
kind of centralizing the knowledge of humanity into one place is going to be able to be one of the foundational things that will enable us to bring about whatever your idea of a utopian future is. Uh, the person who is in the process of developing that utopian future is also the person who has kind of tried to sign to say that we actually should halt the progress of this kind of stuff. What, what are your thoughts on the kind of caution uh, that is one side of, I suppose, the AI community is is uh, warning against? Is, is Should we exercise caution right now in with the development of this technology or is that an overreaction? Uh, no, we should not. We should not exercise uh, caution. I mean, I hate to say it like that. I, 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 so, I, I, everybody I know knows about the letter. So, the Future Life Institute comes out. Thirty thousand people signed this letter, and the uh, that says, "Whoa, we need to hold this thing for six months." And the letter has a quote in it, and I'm not cherry picking this quote. This is bold face in the middle of the letter. This is it. This is the big, the big reveal. And it is, I'm going to read it. It's powerful AI systems should be developed only once we are confident that their effects will be positive and their risks will be manageable. Mm-hmm. Only make them when they are confident that the effects will be positive and the risks will be manageable. There is not, there is not an invention around that could have ever passed that test. Ever. <laughs> to know before you make it that the effects would be positive and the risk would be manageable. Could you have known that about the printing press? That the, okay, now before you printed any books, did you, did, could you know the effects are going to be positive and the risk is going to be manageable? Could you have known that about the internet? Mm. I don't even know it about the internet today. <laughs> uh, if, if the effects are positive and the risk are manageable. Could you have known that before you made the internet? You see, what I think about the letter, because when you look at the signatories, they're amazing people. I mean, my gosh, you look at those names. And here's what I think. I think um, I think they built a machine. Uh, ChatGPT was, you know, the, the, the spark on that one. I think they built a machine, and they don't know what it's going to do. Because if you, if you read all uh, uh, the literature around it, there is not a specific thing they're worried about. Mm. They're worried about, they're not sure. So they built this machine. They don't know what it's going to do. And so they're just like, okay, stop, just stop. But by, Ernest, by that, do, sorry, by that, by that, do you mean, just to clarify, do you mean they built a machine as in OpenAI built ChatGPT mm-hmm. and that's the machine they're, they're worried about? Or do you mean that mm-hmm. there's something yeah. behind the scenes? Oh, you do mean that? No, 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 no. I mean that they built this machine. They built this piece of technology and they don't know. They're so everybody was shocked i was shocked yeah you know it's funny exponential curves are like that like everybody's like oh yeah we all know this stuff's exponential but when you actually get gobsmacked by one it's like dang it where did that come from <laughs> um and you should have been able to see it but you you just can't you can't but because everybody's anchored to the moment they're in and even if you intellectually acknowledge exponential growth you can't internalize it so I think they built this thing, and they're like, holy smokes, what does this do? We, we don't know what's, what people are going to do with this and what they're going to use it for and how it's going to be misused. And let's just stop. Just stop. Everybody freeze. Everybody don't move. And, yeah. and I remember reading this quote from Ernest Hemingway once. He said, he said, the only way you can know you can trust somebody is to trust them. And the only way we're going to be able to know what this technology can do for us uh, is to use it. And you know what? I can tell you. I can tell you that if you pause it for six months, like you could, like but just pretend, uh, you have just paused the cure for cancer by six months. You have just paused clean energy for six months. You have just paused all good things you could do with this piece of technology for six months. And and we know those are those are horrific. So yeah, I, I'm full speed ahead. Yeah, You know, all the things they wanted, all the things that it wants, it's like we need legislative bodies and we need this and we need that, are all things we don't have for the Internet. None of them. We have none of them for the Internet. And we've known this moment was coming for 70 years. You know, everybody what, everybody knew we were going to make this, and everybody's been thinking about it for decades. And so now, what? like out of the blue, <laughs> you're going to be like, okay, well, dang it, now we have it. Let's wait six months. Yeah. I, I think the whole thing is just 
I don't want to say comical because they're they're very serious and they're very worried. But I, I, I just, I, I say full speed ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? It's I think it's just a, a typical human trait, isn't it? Which is that we don't ever act until there's a burning platform underneath us, and only when we have to is when we do it, you know, everyone's like that to some degree. I, I, I'm like that with kind of like health and weight. I fluctuate and there's a, there's a weight that I get to. And when I get to that weight, I know I need to kick into gear and I need to do something about it. And I'll do something about it like I'm doing now. And I'll get to a point probably where I'll, I'll slack off again and I'll reach that limit again and I'll be back on it again. Like, there's only when we have to do something is when we do it, isn't it? It seems as though that point has kind of been reached when ChatGPT was sort of launched and everyone's kind of got their hands on it and thought, oh my God, this is actually quite, quite powerful stuff. <laughs> we don't have that. So maybe we need to do something to, uh, yeah, that's the conspiracy kind of side of things is that those that are signing the letter are potentially the ones who are um, a little bit further behind than, than open AI is in terms of their uh, AI developments. But uh, There are people who question their motives and I don't, I think they're really just all freaked out. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of these things. I'm not even worried about the job stuff, like, could can we talk about that? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. So, go ahead, and, yeah, so everybody, of course, listening to this knows this, there's this great worry that these technologies are going to put people out of work uh, in mass. And I've spent like a long time trying to figure out the half-life of a job. And I think it's 50 years. I think every 50 years, we lose half of all the jobs. Hmm. And I think it's been going on for about 250 years. And you, so you have to say, well, why, how is it that we're always losing half the jobs, but we maintain full employment and rising wages over that 250 years, by the way? And the answer is that technology always creates new things kind of at the top, high, high productivity, high-skilled things, and it destroys ones at the bottom, and everybody just kind of rides that up. Mm. Um, I don't think we're losing jobs any faster than that. If anything, I could make a better argument they're slower. I can't think of a single job that's been eliminated in the last five years, for instance. Not one. Not one. But I can tell you why I think people freak out, why I think people are worried about it. And it, I think it's, it, this took me a while to like sort through. Mm. You, if you go back to the 90s, the beginning of the internet, I remember it like it was yesterday. But if you go back and look at what people were worried about with the internet and jobs, here's what they said. They said, when the internet comes out, all the stockbrokers, they're going out of business. People will just buy their own stocks online. All the travel agents are gone. Uh, people are just going to book their own travel. The newspapers are going to have a hard time. The shopping malls are going to go under because people will just buy stuff online. The yellow pages, they're toast. They're gone. They're not going to be yellow pages anymore. Um, and, and on and on and on. And you know what? They would have been, they were right about every single thing. They were right about all of them. But what none of them said, none of those articles in the 90s said is, oh, there's going to be eBay and Etsy, Airbnb, Uber. There's going to be Spotify, Amazon, Google, and a million new companies. But, and so anybody can look at these technologies and see what they're going to destroy. That's very easy. Mm. But none of us had the imagination to see what they are going to create. You didn't get Uber in 1995 or 1996 because you have to like use the technology a bit to like figure out, oh, all these cool things we can now do with it. Mm. So my suggestion is when people worry about that, just remember something. And that is that these technologies increase human productivity. And that is always, and I mean always good for humans. And if you don't believe that, imagine the counter argument. If, if you should argue that we should pass a law that requires everybody to work with one arm tied behind their back. Now, if you passed a law that said everybody has to work with one arm tied behind their back, what would you have done? You just created an enormous number of jobs because you need more people to do anything. But those jobs won't pay very much because you just destroyed everybody's productivity mm. so all these technologies are are giving everybody a third arm yeah. they're just giving people more productivity and that's always good for people yeah i agree and even those examples that you gave there um the every single one of those industries that could have been and has been impacted by the internet 
some companies in those industries have taken the internet and made it work. So Blockbusters, yes, went out of business, but Netflix comes along. Blockbusters could quite have easily become Netflix, you know. Yeah. Um, same thing with Uber. There's so many taxi drivers and, and taxi companies in the world. Any one of them could have built Uber. Um, the the media side of things, you know, all the newspapers, some of the most trafficked, heavily trafficked websites in the world are newspaper websites or what were newspapers, they're now websites. You know, so all of the industries that are under threat, in actual fact, the the technology itself, if you embrace it, can potentially be the making of that industry, you know. So I think it's it's human nature as well to kind of, you know, maybe used to shy away from things that you don't understand or that look a bit scary or whatever and, and kind of like, uh, yeah, view it as a threat. But I think you're right that, you know, every, it's, it's, it's a huge, super productivity boost and every industry that feels threatened by it should really examine how they can utilize it to be more effective. I'm in full agreement. Yeah, it's interesting. While we talk about jobs, I've, I've got some. I did a I did a talk the other day, uh, not the other day, a couple of months back now, and it was all around basically this: the impact of AI on the job market. And there's some there's some interesting things in here. So one one stat here, which is um, it's from a paper called "New Frontiers: The Origins and Content of New Work," and it's a guy called David Orter and a number of other authors in 2022 did some research and found that 60 percent of workers today in the US are employed in occupations that didn't exist in 1940. Uh. <laughs> which basically ba backs up the, the exact point you were making, which is that new technology comes, new jobs are created, the jobs that are at the bottom of the rung get kind of replaced, but it, nothing, it doesn't change overnight, you know? Another, another interesting one is, uh, is regarding uh, kind of job displacement which is, um, where is it? I've got it here somewhere. Uh, I can't find it now, it's gone. But, uh, oh yeah, so um, the World Economic Forum did a, another survey looking at uh, the priorities of businesses. And the priorities are, number one priority is increasing the adoption of new technologies and broadening digital access which means that the top 10 fastest growing jobs in America right now, number one is machine learning and AI specialists. Number uh, two actually is sustainability specialists, but then the rest of them, aside from number nine, are all technology-related um, roles. So the biggest growth in jobs is coming from technology. So as much as the technology could be perceived as being a, a, a threat, <laughs> the reality is it's leading to a huge job boom at the moment. Um, which is really interesting, and, and even though the the uh, this data from Goldman Sachs, another another study shows that Goldman Sachs anticipates that two thirds of current occupations could be partially automated by AI. Right, you have a look at what those occupations are, and they are things like uh, business operations, sales, management, community and social services, legal, uh, office and administrative support. But then you look at the specific of the, the amount of tasks within those jobs that could potentially be automated. And it ranges from 15% to the highest is 87% for office support. But it's so wildly varied that it's not actually, at least this research would show, that it's not predicted that AI will actually automate any jobs in their entirety. They're just automating some parts of the jobs, which leads to what you were just saying there, which is that it's a productivity tool and you can use it to be more productive. So in, the, 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 in summary, basically, most, most Americans are in jobs now that didn't exist in 1940. The biggest job growth right now in America is technology-related jobs. And even though the technology could potentially impact two-thirds of jobs, it can't automate any of those jobs in their entirety. And in actual fact, if you use the tools that exist today and use them properly, everyone will be far more effective. <laughs> I don't understand what's bad about that. I agree. I agree. I mean, look, we're talking about issues of people being able to provide for their families. And and uh, they have a lot of, I think people just have a lot of basic insecurity about that. And, you know, when the media is like, you're not going to be able to provide for your family, um, I think people are just, get nervous about it. And also, I think it's a technology they don't understand. And so they tend to, to exaggerate in their minds what it will be able to do. Um, 
Mm. You know, it, it doesn't have a lot of autonomy about it. It, uh, it, 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 it aids people, but anyway, yeah. yes, I agree. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so maybe we can, we, we, there's two, two things to finish on. One is, uh, the kind of, you had a really interesting insight around, uh, chat GPT and how that is actually, uh, the culmination of, of 4 billion years worth of, uh, of progress. I don't know if you want to elaborate on, uh, well, I touched on that already. And right, I okay. guess if you, if you go all the way back, um, human history is really interesting because it, it it spikes so quickly. The amount of change the last hundred years and the last thousand and the last ten thousand it it looks like that. Even though you had behaviorally, you had uh, biologically modern humans for two hundred thousand years, nothing happened for those two hundred thousand years. Nothing, and I think you can kind of tell that story by our ability to access data. Um, I picked it up kind of in the middle, but really the story is about how life uses data. And uh, life has one place to write data, and that's DNA. I had one place to write data, which is DNA. And um, to call DNA like a flash drive, that that's not an analogy. It really is that. It, it, DNA is not alive. It's just a book of letters, four-letter four alphabet, GTCA. And... Um, it's about you know a few hundred meg of data, and that's all it is. And uh, there's this kind of this big mystery about why life, single-celled life, existed on Earth for three and a half billion years and it never evolved into multicellular life. And part of it is because the one place you could write information, DNA, it took thousands and thousands of years to write a new piece of information. So life moved very slowly. Then we got the Cambrian explosion and brains evolved. And all of a sudden brains became this second thing that you could, uh, second place you could write information. You had fast place, you could write it, the brain or slow place DNA. And then eventually we came along and we got speech. And, and I think the profound thing about speech is this. I mean, think about this. This is just like, I think, mind blowing. So <laughs> let's say there's a purple berry that's poisonous. Purple berry, the poison berry. We would eventually evolve an aversion to it because some people would eat the poison berry and get real sick and they may not reproduce or they may die. And the people who, who don't like purple, uh, they reproduce. And eventually we could evolve over 10,000 years an aversion to this purple berry. However, what we're able to do is all I have to do is say to you, Hey man, don't eat the purple berry. It'll make you sick. Mm. And that happened in five seconds. And that is exactly the same thing that took 10,000 years to happen before. You used to want the berry and then you knew it was bad and avoided it. And, and so now humans evolved by the minute because we can, we can have mutations by just telling somebody something that is a mutation, it changes their basic behavior. And so we evolve every minute, every minute, every minute. And there's a reason that beavers build kind of the same dams year after year, century after century, and birds build the same nest. But we have we have progress because we're able to evolve by the minute. And that's what what we are. So if if really our our evolution as a species, our ability is somehow a function of of this our ability to employ information in our own lives. ChatGPT is the ultimate. I mean, it is the beginning. It is the type of thing that is the ultimate form of that. This this single knowledge base of of all human knowledge. Um, we can't. Again, it's one of those things that when you're where we are, we can't even imagine what that's going to be. But I can just say that if our ability to utilize information is what gave us that exponential shot up it's really about to get crazy now <laughs> that is crazy and is is that is that what's in agora your new book your latest book or is that something different interestingly no so <laughs> right. agora, agora is my uh we are agora is my latest book and it is um uh it is i hope the thing i am remembered for uh after i am gone and basically, when I was a kid, I was a beekeeper. And I learned something about bees, which, um, you know, a bee is an animal, and it's made of cells. 
It's like you, you and I are animals made of cells. But a bunch of bees together that form a hive become a new animal. Not a bunch of bees. It's it's a beehive. And it has all these different properties. For instance, bees are cold-blooded creatures. They can't regulate their body temperature. But beehives are warm-blooded. They hold their body temperature at 97 degrees. Um, a beehive lives 100 years. A, a bee might live six weeks. Beehive has a memory. Beehive can do things like find new homes that no bee can do. So that beehive is called a superorganism. And what I wondered is, does that exist for humans? A bunch of cells make a human. Do a bunch of humans make a new creature? Not a metaphysical touchy-feely thing, but in a biological sense, is there an animal that we are all parts cells of that we can't perceive because it, li it lives on a different time scale than we do? Uh, and I think there is. I think I can prove it scientifically. I think I'd make a bunch of falsifiable predictions about what you could say about humans if we if there is this creature. I named it Agora, and uh, and I think it is sort of the it. I think it also will explain why we are here. Why? And you see, scientifically, and science does not like why questions. That's just not a science thing normally. Mm -hmm. Science likes how. Mm -hmm. how do you, how did this happen? How does this work? How does it? Why science uh, always like changes the subject? I don't know that. Um, so I think I can answer the question why we are here scientifically with this uh, theory. I th so I think there is this animal that we are all part of, and I think it, uh, it lives and breeds and thinks, and and I think it uh, explains why we're here, and I think it explains what we as individuals how we should live. Uh, our lives. Mm. So that is a book that I'm I'm very proud of. Interesting. Is it and and I suppose one and this might be on the wrong track, correct me if I'm if I'm back at the wrong tree here, but for example, if you look at any field where there is some kind of cohesion of ideas and direction, like science as a field for example there's lots of different elements and parts of science but let's say for example that uh curing cancer is one part now there's lots and lots of different people in the world trying to work on that specific problem and all of them working together and doing research and sharing that research and then the next person learns from that and then they contribute and the next person learns from that and you've got this collection of people all over the globe all concentrating on one single idea even the, an idea in itself i suppose is something that you could say is part of that hive mind if you like because an idea can be present in lots and lots of different people's lives and everyone can be starting to work towards that idea and the accomplishment of that idea will be for the betterment of all of those who were trying to accomplish it like curing cancer is that is that kind of the thing you're getting at in in that yes sense? yes I use the example of a smartphone. Um, nobody, there's not a human alive who can build a smartphone. There's nobody who can go mine the cobalt and refine it and then make this, make all the parts. And then, so there's no person who knows how to build a smartphone and yet smartphones get made. Mm. Um, so that being able to make a smartphone is an emergent property of, of humans. Now it's easy to say that it seems like maybe it's a leap to say, the one making the smartphone is Agora. Agora makes a smartphone. I think that is the case because we exhibit all these other attributes of being superorganisms. For instance, the parts of a superorganism cannot survive apart from it. You can't, if you take a bee from a beehive and you know drive it 50 miles and let it go, it's going to die. It cannot live apart from the hive. And so you say, well, are we so specialized that we can't live apart from society? And I would say, yes. Um, superorganisms require an enormous amount of conformity. If a bee starts acting weird or an ant starts acting weird, they just kill it. And so then you say, you know, do humans require an enormous amount of conformity? And when you look at it, it, it turns out we do. We even criminalize nonconformity. Like if you're a, a brain surgeon and you, know, you were trained to do something one way and you're like, I like to do it a different way. You got my own way. Um, you know. There are all these ways we we manufacture, we use schools to manufacture workers and we test them with standardized tests to make sure they're all identical as possible. And we 
you know, when you join the army, they shave your head so you look like everybody else and they don't give you four uniforms where you get to choose the one you want every morning. You know, there's all of these ways that we rigidly enforce uh, conformity. Um, and so there are all these things that that show me that we are parts of a of an organism, a superorganism. And and I think there's a lot, a lot more than that. The, the organism would have a hive, and I think cities, you can see how they encode information and access information, and, and on and on and on. Uh, but again, the, the big takeaway is like, well, how then should I live? And that's what the part of the book I'm, I'm proudest of, because superorganisms function because, well, anyway, I'm mm. giving away the ending. <laughs> well, we don't want you to do that because I am confident that uh, that people will be interested in reading it, and I'll be interested in reading that myself. I've read the other two. Uh, I know you've got more than the other two, but I've read uh, Stories, Dice, and Rocks, I think, and, and The Fourth Age as well, and two brilliant books, and so definitely Agora well, will be on my list. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you. Um, so we'll put those links in the show notes for you to uh, to take a look at. We'll link to those uh, all, all of Brian uh, Byron's books, uh, especially Agora. I'll also link to the Pars Conference, do not forget that, June 17th to 19th, the conversational AI event of the year. And also next week, don't forget, we're talking to Quick and Loop Car Insurance about how they built their generative AI chatbot. Uh, so thank you for joining me, Baron. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. No problem. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks so much. Bye now. <laughs>